Hello, and thank you for tuning in. You are listening to the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. You can listen and subscribe to the show for free on Spotify, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, Blog Talk Radio, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. For network or show information, visit ByteRadio.me. And now, the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. Good day, everyone, and thank you for joining us for this edition of the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. Today, my special guest is Richard S. Cohen, and we'll be talking about his new book, The Smooth River, Finding Inspiration and Exquisite Beauty During Terminal Illness, Lessons from the Front Line. The Smooth River is a remarkable story of how a well-known public relations expert and her husband met her stage four pancreatic cancer head on. With vigor and strength, they deployed all they and medicine had to offer. But in contrast to narrow conventional approaches, the couple developed a far more expansive view of what strength means in response to a crisis for which there are no medical cures. They called it the smooth river. With effusive warmth, refreshing candor, and practical detail, it describes how to personalize medical and life plans that affirm the value of a patient's being and guide their loved ones. Its invaluable lessons show how to face the possibility of dying with sanctity and comfort, to view it as an opportunity for personal growth, finding inspiration and intense beauty in the experience, in life itself. Trained as a corporate lawyer, Richard is a merger and acquisition advisor specializing in the healthcare industry. He is an expert in navigating complex transactions, developing grounded creative solutions, and managing many professionals and personalities during stressful conditions. All of these skills were put to work in finding sanctuary, beauty, humor, and spirituality within cancer's decay. For more information, you can visit the website www.smoothriver.org. And with that, I'd like to welcome Richard to the show. Good day, Richard. Good day, Robert. I so much admire you and everything you're doing. Thank you very much. It's, um, it's people like you and stories that keep me talking so, and, and learning and learning. You know, there's a lot that I learned from your book that I, I'm really looking forward to sharing. Um, but let's start with Marsha, your wife, Marsha. Um, tell us about her. You know, what, what, who is the essence of Marsha? Uh, my wife, Marsha, uh, was a... It's so funny to say that in the past tense, but she was a public relations crisis management uh, professional. Uh, She passed away in February of 2020, last year, uh, after spending uh, three or so years in the press office of Mayor A. Beam decades ago, and then over 41 years at Rubenstein Associates, a well-known crisis management, reputation management, public relations firm. And Marsha represented uh, celebrities, famous athletes, corporations, nonprofits, private schools in times of crisis. Oftentimes, she kept their name out of the uh, headlines, but oftentimes she had to deal with the uh, fray of of public exposure and uh, trying to create perspective in the story. So for these clients, she always found the calm within the storm. She had an inimitable way of reducing very complex matter. It could be years back, uh, Cooper Tires had a major uh, problem, uh, Madoff uh, uh, personalities had problems a, a couple of years ago, but all sorts of other well-known people that I can't mention. But she had this inimitable way of reducing complex matter to uh, a simple, straightforward statement and message that uh, would resonate with the press and with the public. 
So it was um, this same uh, attitude that she applied to the illness that we are going to talk about now. So um, do you want me to transition into that? or Actually, and before we do that, um, can you tell us, I mean, this is a, obviously a, a, a wonderful love story. I mean, you know, reading the stories of, of you and her experiences, um, I'd just like to know how, how it began. How, how did this um, match start? Um, it is a love story. Uh, the, the intention of the book, as you know, is to help other people. But the love story and the flesh of the experience needed to be um, examined so it, it could provide a case study to help other people. We met uh, in our late 20s, uh, you know, when two single people meet, they're, they're two circles, like in a Venn diagram. And when people mm-hmm. get together, there's a you know, broad overlap. We met um, maybe in those days, it was a little late to get married. It sounds funny in the late 20s, <laughs> early 30s, but it was late then. And we just met in a, a share house in a beach community. Uh, neither of us really liked <laughs> the beach community, but we went out with a purpose to meet somebody, and we did. <laughs> so, um, you know, we, we were married for some 37, 38 years uh, when, she, when she passed. But we, we had a um, very much of a um, confluence of mentality, of our frame of mind, of, of um, the way we looked at the world, which was, you know, clear-headed, you know, practical, even balanced, you know, pragmatic. We both have clients, so we both know how to uh, uh, put our, subordinate our egos and make our clients uh, in the forefront and, and, and serve their interests responsibly. So we were very much in, on the same wavelength, um, same values, um, shared a great sense of humor, and, um, you know, I very much enjoyed uh, the exciting life she led professionally and uh, the dinnertime conversation. You know, she told me about her clients without mentioning names, but it was it was very entertaining. Well, I bet. I bet. You know, and that calm, balanced approach, um, it seems that that is um, – a critical piece of what's called what you two called the smooth river. So, can you tell us um, exactly what you know the smooth river um, approach is? Sure. May I give you background on her diagnosis and how this Please. all came about? Okay. okay. In the summer of twenty nine. Okay. In the summer of twenty nineteen, right. we took a an unbelievable trip to the Middle East being hosted by a Palestinian mother of four PhD to Israel, the West Bank and Jordan. And she took us deep into Arab culture and it was eye opening. Um, and we bonded uh, in terms of uh, just a friendship with, with our, with our host. We came back in, in July or August of 2019, Marsha experienced some stomach pain. It was, you know, diagnosed as small intestine uh, bacterial overgrowth, SIBO, and some other thing. She was given uh, um, uh, antibiotics by a GI. And finally, uh, the day before Labor Day, she was asked to come in that Tuesday after Labor Day, September 3rd, 2019, when she she took a CT scan. And a couple of hours later, the GI called us into his office um, and uh, revealed that Marsha had stage four, stage four pancreatic cancer. You know, Robert, I don't know if you know, but stage four pancreatic cancer is um, is, is is terminal for the most part. Um, pancreatic cancer is has no diagnostic, so most people discover they're in stage four um, for the first time, uh, and that means it mis- metastasized or spread to other organs. And it's, it can't be operated on. Just a little sidetrack, Robert. Uh, November is Pancreatic Cancer Awareness Month, and today, right today, is World uh, Pancreatic Can- World Pancreatic Cancer Day. So it took us three days after or so the the diagnosis. We got hit. We got knocked down. It was it was a complete 
you know, blow to our system. Everything we planned on was was you know thrown off thrown off balance. And then you know, three or four days after the diagnosis, I don't want to make light of it. It was you know we we plunged underwater, but we resurfaced. You know, due to the same mindset that you know she applied to her clients, she decided and gave me my marching orders that she did not want to be treated as a tragedy. She wanted to see her life in its entirety and not defined, you know, by this period. So um, we we went through um, an array of medical uh, treatments. We didn't shy away from anything. But this mindset of, you know, clarity and, and teeming chaos with calm and, and, um, and not wanting to be thrown into disarray, we wanted order, not chaos, um, we – we defined as as a spur-of-the-moment thing as, as the smooth river. That was the code we gave doctors on how you know, Marsha was to be treated. It didn't mean shying away from anything. It just meant um, hoping for the best but preparing for the worst and coming to terms with end of life. We're all going to die, coming to terms with its, its finite nature. And doing so enabled us to optimize this 160-day period. We didn't know how long it was going to, to take. It could have been months longer or months or shorter. The median uh, life expectancy in stage 4 pancreatic cancer is only three to six months. Marshall lasted 160 days or five months. But coming to terms with life's finality gave us the uh, opportunity to, um, I know this is going to sound funny, but have a um, exquisitely beautiful experience as opposed to um, a more frenetic experience that many people have even uh, because they you know have trouble confronting end of life don't want to discuss it and even doctors are known for uh, shunning end of life discussions because it's it's difficult matter when you do that you get surprised at the end when things don't work out if you open up to um, to the possibility of of dying or life's finite nature, it's going to impact all of us. By doing that, we were able to pr- prepare for everything, to shock absorb every eventuality, and it gave us you know the time, the opportunity, and the mindset to do some wonderful projects and experiences, and all within this shrinking confines of life that we were undergoing. Yeah, um, it, it's um, amazing that you know you you mentioned kind of like days after a few days. Now, you know, in the book you talk about that those first few days um, were you were kind of in a you know, like a zombie kind of you know the the, the reaction. It, it took a while for it to um, kind of settle in and. I think that's probably what most people would experience, I would think, um, is that disorientation following um, the kind of diagnosis. So because, is it because of, um, not both of yours, but in particular her um, experience with crisis management that, um, that she kind of applied that to this like mother of all crises? You know, yes, yes, but you know, Robert, I don't want to make it seem like you have to be a crisis management expert to open up to reality. Um, you know, yeah. after three or four days, you're you're absolutely right. We were we were um, basket cases. Okay, it was otherworldly, and we you know we we just heard the shock and we just couldn't get our minds around it. But after the third or fourth day, when we circulated in cancer world. And we saw some, you know, oncologists, and we saw we were not alone in terms of um, being diagnosed with a terminal disease or a serious cancer. Um, And, you know, we started reading up on, you know, pancreatic cancer uh, victims, you know, generally. I mean, famous people like Aretha Franklin and and Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Steve Jobs died at 56, and Michael Landon from Bonanza was 54, Um, Luciano Pavarotti, Donna Reed, Alex Trebek, who she spoke with. Um, so we, we understood that we weren't alone. So we got some, you know, grounding and bearing. Um, in regard to other people reaching this understanding, I do, 
I tread lightly on, on, on mentioning this, but it really does not require you know professional background. All it requires mm-hmm. is seeing a fork in the road. One fork is opening up to reality, and the other fork is um, you know maybe denying it and putting on blinders or hiding from what's what what um, what might what might be a possibility or even a probability. And if you do that, if you um, if you avoid the subject, avoid talking about it, avoid thinking about it, avoid planning for it, um, oftentimes you're thrown into roller coasters, um, treatments and medications, and uh, you know all sorts of activities that um, you're running from it, and you're you're trying to best best to escape it, but um, you know sometimes medicine doesn't have a treatment or or a cure for things. And, um, you know, we, we, um, we benefited, um, you know, from opening up to, you know, the possibility. We didn't want it, but nor did we uh, avoid, you know, talking about it. So I would say, I mean, the purpose of the book is to help other people. And we, I gently um, advocate or, or go over our experience to have other people infer lessons that might be applied to their own so that they could, you know, come to terms with life's, um, you know, finality. And Robert, one, one of the points I, I make in the book, and it, it, it applies to me now, is that we do not have to wait until there's a terminal illness um, diagnosis or there's a life-threatening event um, to appreciate, you know, life now. Um, younger people, people who are healthy, um, you know, should understand, not just conceptually, but in real terms, that um, we are all going to die. And mm-hmm. with that recognition that could imbue their lives now with just a greater, greater appreciation for you know, people and things in front of them, uh, not sweating the small stuff, being able to prioritize and enjoy you know, life more. Um, so even though we developed this in a smooth river mentality um, during, um, you know, this horrible, you know, period, you know, looking back, I wish I knew this decades ago. So I could, um, uh, you know, turn the other cheek, cheek, not get so uh, worked up about things and understand the bigger points about life. Um, So in any event, it's a, it's a mindset and a perspective that, um, is really just about you know opening up to pragmatics, not giving in to anything, but making mindful mm-hmm. choices of what you might do. Um, Atul Gawande, in his um, great book, Being Mortal, which was a PBS uh, Frontline special as well. Atul Gawande was a surgeon who wrote a number of best-selling books about you know doctors not addressing end-of-life matters with patients because they regarded as a, a treatment as being their own failing if it doesn't work. Um, he had an expression, it was the name of a book, in, I think in the 20s or 30s, ODTAA, stands for one damn thing after another. And that's oftentimes <laughs> the medical treatment. It's oftentimes the medical yeah. treatment. They're doing X and Y and one, you know, they're swinging from one tree to another without understanding that, um, some treatments may cause more harm than good, and um, you know, for whatever the experience, if you're under stress and um, in the throes of things, you're not going to be able. I, I shouldn't say not likely. You would be impaired in being able to um, experience and appreciate the remain remainder of 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 your life. We were look when we were going through this as we were. This was our life. And, you know, we didn't know whether Marsha would have six days or 60 days or 160 days or six years. We didn't know, you know, any of this. But this was our life, and nothing was going to impair or impact or negatively affect our experience. Um, we didn't want it. This, was, this is when all the money's on the table now. And we just mm-hmm. we wanted to do this as best we could. And, um, like I said not have her life defined by this period, but rather by the entirety of her life. Yeah, yeah, very much so. And, you know, in, in the idea of um, 
normalizing end of life, you know, conversations and matters. Um, it is. It's really important, I think, for because there's so much stigma. Like you said, even you know, doctors who may not want may not want to address that thinking or, or viewing it again as a, maybe a failure on their part. Um, but but I think that just even with that um, that perspective, it, it makes it difficult for the patient, I would think, to um, to open up and, and address those in, in, in a head-on manner than trying to just, you know, quote, hope for the best and, and just see what happens. Definitely. In the 70s, um, a woman, uh, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, you may have heard of her, wrote this famous book on death and dying. Um, it's a quote is in the beginning of the book, and uh, it's it's on death and dying. I think the subtitle is what the dying have to teach doctors, caregivers, uh, patients, and their families. Um, the quote I have in the book of, of her is, uh, "Those who learn to know death rather than fear and fight it become our teachers for uh, teachers about life." Um, she did a study mm. of people who were dying, um, breaking the taboo of talking about talking to them, and they wanted to talk. Because when you're dying, as, as Marsha experienced it, um, you're not, um, you don't have the same expectations. Your body is winding down. You're not as hyped up. And it's really the people that are surrounding you that are, are worked up about the whole thing. Um, so there's a lot that dying um, can, can teach us. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross was the pioneer for hospice care. And, and palliative medicine care. Uh, palliative medicine is is a branch of medicine that is becoming more popular now. It's mainstream in terms of you know cancer care, and it deals with uh, treating uh, the uh, treating to the patient's comfort, making the patient comfortable, you know, by way of pain medication or just tending to the uh, patient's entirety, as opposed to treating the thing, the cancer. And it can be applied for uh, orthopedic injuries, um, having nothing to do with death or aging. But the 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 um, the disciplines of hospice and palliative medicine uh, and their philosophies should imbue all care. Meaning, the doctors and nurses mm -hmm. should treat the entire patient and not just the not just the thing. I will tell you that it's not just doctors and nurses. I, you know, a point of this book, I am not critical of them. I, I work in the healthcare industry. I want to, uh, in a sort of a loving way, nudge everybody mm -hmm. toward broaching this subject, as you, as you say, so we can talk about it, talk about it comfortably. The patients, too, want to, you know, avoid it oftentimes, and their loved ones want to avoid it oftentimes. So it needs to be gently addressed, but... Um, you know, by not addressing, by not addressing it, and living with blinders on, you can get you can get um, shocked at the end, leave all sorts of conversation yeah. uh, unattended to and legal preparations, versus what we did, um, clarity and talking about everything, um, left no stone unturned, and we even, um, as I said. Um, had to influence our doctors to be open with us. We could take it. It's okay. You know, um, there's a book called Conversations at Midnight, which I reference in, Smooth, in the Smooth River book, whereby the author's, uh, author's relative was, was dying, and the doctor felt so bummed out by his treatment not working on the patient that the patient had to get the doctor off the hook. The patient had to be the person consoling the doctor, and um, it's it's um, it should be comfortable for medical professionals, patients, their loved ones, to be able to open up to this possibility, um, not to romanticize death, but to recognize it as a possibility, so we can appreciate life. And I hope my book comes across as a life-affirming experience to help others and um, in a positive way, in an inspirational way, 
rather than a um, a somber negative way. Right, right, and and it does, by the way, come through that way. Um, now, Liz, you know, you were talking about you know the doctors and interactions. You, you talk in the book about the idea of you know of fighting the disease of a battle. You know, someone lost their battle to cancer. You know, it's a battle, it's a fight, it's a loss. Um, you know, can you talk a little bit about that? Because, um, you know, if if we are dealing with or someone is dealing with cancer right now, um, how can we, um, you know, talk about it without this idea of the, the patient, you know, when the patient eventually dies, um, that it's a, you know, it's, a loss, like they didn't do enough, or the doctors didn't do enough. Um, it, it, it's a it's a cultural tendency to treat uh, an illness as a sport or a, or a battle, um, and uh, you know the issue with that is if you get too wrapped up in it uh, and things don't succeed, there's a loss, and oftentimes the patient can get indirectly blamed, you know, for, for not winning or just psychologically get put back because everybody's, you know, telling the patient and the family you have to fight, you have to climb the mountain. And, uh, you know, sometimes like pancreatic, like stage four pancreatic cancer, there are no, there are no effective, effective treatments. There's a lot of people, there's a lot written in the book about, um, uh, people critical about comparing managing an illness to a sport or a battle. Um, There were criticisms uh, written about Roger Ebert, the famous movie critic, um, uh, Mm -hmm. uh, comparing his battle. But um, there are, as I said, there are illnesses that medicine has no treatment. Marsha and I were okay with, uh, you know, the analogy, but it wasn't, you know, the analogy of fighting, you know, the cancer, but it wasn't a loss, <laughs> you know. It was it was just it was just a metaphor. Um, where we, we we take issue with it, and I think where what you know how we're programmed societally, and how we have to change our view on this is that if we um, define a medical a a, 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 a medical uh, uh, if someone succumbs or or is not cured or or treated so that they get better, that their entire life is regarded as a loss and that the way they die is, is defining them. So, um, I, you know, I can't, you can't help people def- using those analogies. It's okay, but we need to understand yeah. that people need to be judged by the entirety of their lives and not by, you know, 160 days or the way they may die. And it could be by, could be by a crime or, a, you know, instant heart attack. You know, their lives are bigger right. than the way they die. Exactly. And, and, you know, the kind of piggybacking on that, it, it was the, the idea of that, the conventional saying that attitude is everything, um, but it's not. So that was one of the things that kind of stuck out when I was reading your book that, you know, because I mean, I'm in this, you know, inspiration business of, of, you know, podcasting and, you know, so often, you know, we focus on, you know, attitude, you know, that, that it's like the ultimate um, path, you know, I guess. Um, but I've often, I recognize that that's not, you know, that's not always the case. So, um, you know, can you talk a little bit about the idea of, you know, maybe a, a healthy, positive attitude, but not making it everything? Right. So, you know, the, adi- the distinction I'm making, which is rampant, by the way, <laughs> this is not just me. I mean, it's rampant. You see in the book that there's, you know, so many studies written about this. The adi- You know, we found ourselves in an environment where, you know, you're sort of uh, expected to get on a treadmill and run and fight and, uh, you know, treat it like a sport. And, you know, the attitude is everything people mean is this, you know, fight, conquer attitude, never give up, that type of thing. Um, we mm-hmm. found that to be incredibly simplistic um, and, you know, um, not opening up to the pragmatics here. The attitude that we thought what 
Attitude is everything. <laughs> it is everything, but not that attitude. The attitude we came to that is everything is being opened up to being opened up to reality and all all possibilities and you know regarding the sport conquer metaphor whatever whatever that attitude is where we just discussed there as being that's just one that's one perspective the bigger perspective is reality and the reality is that you know okay we, we can do this chemo we can do the surgery if it's if it's worthwhile um but it may not work and um you know the the the, the the, the the healthier attitude, the attitude that is you know opening up to what's really going on is just uh, you know expanding to a panorama of 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 um, you know the the possibility or probabilities that something they may work they may not work but preparing for everything so that was that's the attitude um, that um, that we adopted um, and uh, you know benefit benefited us greatly, enabling us to find lovely, you know, experiences and projects along the way and, and um, you know, structure our time the way we wanted to structure it versus what other people expected us to do, get on a treadmill, do more of this, do more of that. We did all the heavy key. We did everything. We did more than any, everything. We went off the rails with the doctor's uh, 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 sanctioning. But, um, you know, again, we we did not want to be defined by this narrow thinking that if you didn't conquer the cancer, you're a loser. Mm-hmm. And this part of this yeah. book is I'm really proud to stand up for the millions of people that didn't make it and their loved ones. Um, and because you know we're not happy stories in 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 a societal you know veneer. Um, the happy stories are the case studies of, you know, the outliers of those who have made it. And, you know, mm-hmm. once you don't make it, you could be, you know, shunned or, or, or not spoken mm-hmm. about. You, you know, one of the mm-hmm. books called it, you know, almost dying from terminal illness is almost like an obscenity. You don't want to speak about it. It's put off to the side. I, as you said before, I hope to shine a light on being able to discuss end-of-life matters and being open to oral, all you know, all possibility. So, not only does that enable us to treat the remainder of our lives, you know, better the way we want to and optimize it, but it it enables us to treat all of our lives, even if we're not ill, as I said before, just with more meaning and um, being able to distinguish the clutter from the clarity, the mundane, you know, and what's important in life, and, and not to get um, not to get dragged down by the small stuff. Yeah, it's very important. Um, I was, let's see, when when you you mentioned the doctors and um, you and Marsha, when it, when it came time for choosing a doctor, um, would you mind sharing the the process that you and Marsha went through? You know, some of the considerations in that selection. Yes. Um, this is uh, important. Uh, well, you know, we wanted to find a, uh, an oncologist that specialized in, in pancreatic cancer and an oncologist that uh, is specialized in, 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 in you know, chemo and treatment versus, you know, surgery. So, you know, that's what we did. And when you're in the, you're in the throes of this, um, you know, there's a time element. You know, between that day of diagnosis and the first day of chemo is critical. <laughs> you know, the hourglass is, is, is ticking, and you want to, uh, you know, uh, treat the cancer as quickly as, as you can. So we went to a, I'm not going to mention names, but we went to a, you know, well-known institution, and, um, and that's what we did. And our experience there um, was, you know, part of this environment I'm describing that um, I don't want to say we were treated on a conveyor belt or a number, but we were, there were certain expectations that if chemo one doesn't work, we'll switch to chemo two. And, you know, there was, there was some thinking that was involved in making that switch because Marsha was pounded so bad by chemo one. These are very heavy duty chemos that, um, that, you know, we had to rethink 
uh, you know, chemo too. She ultimately did it. But we did sw- switch doctors. And we switched doctors because the second doctor was more humane. There was more chemistry. Marcia felt more comfortable um, with, this, with the new doctor. My point here is, you know, there's technical prowess to, um, in choosing a doctor and then also uh, having the doctor maybe have availability of clinical trials and the latest research. There's definitely um, a value in those, you know, resume-type points. What the, the doctor's skill set, you know, the, the doctor's uh, experience and the institution, et cetera. But there's also a value in chemistry and in the intangibles of the relationship. And this, go, this goes to Smooth River. Um, so, you know, if we could have, um, uh, you know, been treated by, you know, Dr. One, things worked out, it would have been okay. But we knew the larger expanse here and the low, um, you know, probabilities of success. Each, each chemo had a, you know, 20% chance or so of working. The second chemo being this, had an even lower one. So I would say technical ability, experience, but also warmth of personality and, um, and, 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 and fit with the patient um, are, are very important in choosing a doctor. Yeah, yeah, I, I was kind of taken back when I when I read you know the, the you conveyed a, an experience you know, about how first impressions are important, and that um, there was you were directed toward Doctor A and their team, um, but uh, you first met with a Doctor B, <laughs> and and the Doctor B um, basically. Did not review, did not kind of prep. I mean, you you went, you both went through the the important background work of getting to the doctors everything they needed, you know. And and yet this one doctor um, obviously had not taken the time to review any of the information that you you know carefully went and prepared. So I found it um, interesting how you handled that because I mean, any patient who goes through, you know, giving all of the information and then is being, you know, interviewed um, with some basics that should have been there. I mean, that would have been extremely frustrating. But you, can you how, how you handled that? How, how you handled well, that? Well, uh, was... <laughs> this is in that three or four day period when we were, um, in contrast to the rest of our experience, the other 156 days, we were in free fall the first few days. So when we got mm-hmm. all of our diagnostic tests together, there's an endoscopy, and then there's a biopsy, and then there's a CT scan, and there's you know, an array of tests you need to get together before you can have your first oncology appointment. And, you know, we were given this stage four uh, pancreatic cancer diagnosis, and it's one of the worst, you know, cancers there there is. So we just, we wanted just to be comforted and, and, and um, by this, new, this, this doctor. I thought, you know, he was going to be our, our partner. Um, so, look, I, I don't uh, – it didn't happen that way. I, I'm in the healthcare profession, so I'm not here to be critical, be critical of any one person. I want to lovingly or in a constructive manner improve things because they, especially under COVID, are under so much stress. You know, the tendency of this assembly line treatment, they have to see so many patients, their compensation is sometimes – you know, determined on, on numbers. So um, my a point in the book is, and also, you know, embracing, you know, it's not just the doctors we saw, but everybody. We all have our tension, do, tensions. Doctors are, are humans too. Uh, I, we, um, I think there's a quality of the experience. Seeing a patient uh, as you would want to be treated as a doctor as a, um, is important. I, it doesn't involve more time, but it just... Um, Intel, opening up, looking at a patient eye to eye, and you know just trying to understand the the entire aura of the of the patient, and not treating them as as you know just a just a just a number. But I do feel for the doctors, and they're compressed by you mm-hmm. know the administration of their hospitals and whatever. Um, but in any event. I, it's it's a process choosing yeah. a doctor and experience and chemistry and personality are in the mix. 
Very much, very much. Well, um, Richard, we're well past halfway. I want to take just a quick 90-second break. Um, and then when we come back, um, I want to talk about uh, the uh, idea of a life plan and a medical plan, you know, and, and, you know, how those led to some clarity for you folks. Okay, so everyone stay tuned. We'll be right back after this brief break. Hello, this is Robert Sharp. I want to thank you for joining us, and I hope that you are enjoying today's show. Just a reminder that we have a wealth of information and resources available on our website, byteradio.me. There is a calendar of upcoming shows, along with an archive link that will give you access to more than 1,600 shows that we have had during the past 12 years. Also on the site is a link to the products and services we provide, books, nature photography, calendars, and 5x7 photo greeting cards. Our show is a free podcast on Blog Talk Radio, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and TuneIn. And you can subscribe for free on any of those platforms by using the links on our website homepage. We are on social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, etc. And we also have buttons to those platforms on the top of our homepage. Our website, ByteRadio.me, has much for you to explore and enjoy. I also very much appreciate you supporting our guests, and especially today's guest. And now, back to the show. Okay, everyone, thank you for staying with us. Again, today, my special guest is Richard S. Cohen, and we're talking about his new book, The Smooth River, Finding Inspiration and Exquisite Beauty During Terminal Illness. And again, you can find out more by visiting the website, which is www.smoothriver.org. Okay, with that, we're back, Richard. Great. Great. Okay, so... In the book, you talk about you know, a way to kind of tame the chaos that is that was surrounding this period is the, the creation of a life plan and a medical plan. So can you tell us um, about, about each? Sure. Um, first off, uh, the, this was not a PowerPoint. <laughs> this was not highly structured, but we... Uh, we, we wanted to have some sort of uh, structure to our period here. So we had, we knew the medical plan was, you know, clinically oriented, and then we had to deal with the rest of our life. So that's just, just a way of thinking that we have applied on the medical plan. You know, there's only two standard of care chemos for, for stage four pancreatic cancer. And as I said before, each of them has only a 20 or 30% chance of working. Um, I, it, and, you know, there's some more um, me, uh, treatments like immunotherapy that unleashes the body's own immune system and some other diagnostics or genetic tests that are available for other cancers are not really available uh, for pancreatic cancer. But in any event, you know, we did the, the, the heaviest duty chemo, chemo one, which is called Fulfurinex, and uh, it's a, uh, you know, four or five hour session at a chemo center. And then, uh, and then you patient takes home a fanny in a fanny, uh, pack, a, a pump that goes for another 48 hours. So we did all of that and we had a shock absorb, you know, the, the toxicity of, of chemo, uh, which causes, you know, pain and nausea and digestion problems. And it's hard to discern whether the problems are, originating from the cancer or the chemo, but, you know, we did all of that. And then in between these, in these, these chemo sessions, they take tumor marker tests, blood tests, and CT scans every three or four weeks to measure whether the cancer is, is, is progressing or not. Um, one of the points I make in the book that we discovered later on, but I want to make now uh, for the benefit of other people, is the advice to conduct uh, prophylactic hydrations, which is basically saline hydrations between chemo sessions, because a patient can get so um, hyd- uh, dehydrated 
Uh, Marsha collapsed and fainted several times. Her blood pressure dropped precipitously. It would have been alleviated to a large extent if she was hydrated, you know, between chemo sessions to, as a preventative maintenance, you know, type of thing. Likewise, she underwent um, tremendous pain. You know, they measure pain in a scale of one to ten. It's 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 not 100% accurate because it's measured on the subjectivity of, of of a patient, but it would have been better. We found out later on, and you know, she lasted 160 days, maybe at day 120 or so, that there are these um, time release opioids that could um, could level off the pain before it happens, and then there are breakthrough opioids to, to handle spikes. We were for 120 days. Marsha had a pain. We were always fight, fighting it from the from the rear historically, uh, like fighting a fire. But you know the the, the blending of time release pain medications and uh, breakthrough immediate release pain medications is a wonderful balance, you know, to to develop. Opioids are no problem under a uh, oncologist supervision, particularly when you're you're in uh, you're at end of life. We tried chemo to. Um, Marsha was, was so drawn out by then. She had developed anemia, which is uh, low red blood count, and that basically took her off that. You know, we, we did some, uh, we did, uh, our, our second oncologist uh, recommended investigational drugs with, with, a, with a biotech company sent us. We, I gave Marsha in, mor- at morning, in, mor- in the morning and at night subcutaneous shots. Um, in her, at a pinch her thighs and stomach and shoulder and and legs. Um, we I even sought out uh, dog dewormers. These are um, anti-parasitical parasitic compounds they give to dogs. Um, we heard some outlier uh, experience there, and I got our oncologist to work out the dosages with our pharmacist to do that. So we did everything. And like I said before, on the medical plan, I, I th- we think the palliative medicine doctors, the one that treats the, the pain medication, the comfort of the patient is critically important. And oftentimes, even though it's there as part of the spectrum of care, it needs to be co-equal to the treating of the thing. Because um, the patient's comfort, the patient's, this is patient's life is, is very important. In Atul Gawande's book, he mentions that his father, who was dying, was not afraid of dying. He was afraid of the pain, as Marsha was, in the process. Mm-hmm. So that was, that was all part of the medical plan. Marsha saw a cancer psychiatrist. She wasn't depressed, but it was great to talk things out, and, and, and she um, prescribed anti-anxiety, anti-anxiety drugs. And, um, and it really wasn't until the four days before Marsha passed that we went to hospice. Before that, and hospice came to our hospital. Before that, we did some palliative medicine treatments, like putting a filter in one of Marsha's veins to stop a blood clot in her feet from going, in her leg, from going and causing an embolism in her lung. And we did some palliative med- med- uh, radiation to stop the tumor in her pancreas from penetrating her stomach and causing bleeding there. So that was all part of the medical plan. We all, everything was tamed into, it's okay if it doesn't work, we're going to try everything and we're going to be proactive. And we got enormous psychological rewards from, from doing so. Now we'll jump to the life plan. Yeah. The life plan, Robert? The life plan yeah, involves yeah. finding silver silver linings everywhere. So, you know, we brought in our family. We have, uh, you know, two sons, one of whom is married and with a grandson. And uh, we, you know, so we, we spent some, you know, very quality uh, family time whenever uh, we dedicated, Marsha and I dedicated an hour to a day in the late afternoon to talk about whatever she wanted to talk about. And she wanted to talk about everything. How, what's it going to be like for me to die? Everything. So by doing that, by defining a, defi- a, a specific time and a specific room in our house enabled her to get everything out and for me to become a better listener. And what that did is uh, permit her for the rest of the day to read books, watch Netflix, speak to her colleagues, speak to her friends, but not worry that she was going to miss something. And then, you know, we took walks, uh, particularly around waterside settings. Marsha loved water, the purification qualities to it. Uh, almost every day, we tried to immerse ourselves in, in nature, 
and uh, just do things we ordinarily did and get our minds um, above the cancer. Uh, one anecdote, if I might, you know, we live north of New York City, uh, near um, Terrytown, New York, which is which was uh, made famous by Washington Irving's books, Headless Horseman and Rip Van Winkle. Um, there's they they converted industrial sites to this beautiful uh, walkway and esplanade along the river. It faces west. That's the sunset view. The river's three miles wide at that point, and uh, right under the new bridge, it used to be called the Tappan Zee Bridge, you can see all the way down to the Freedom Tower, the New York City skyline. To the south, there's a lovely light, lighthouse to the north. West Point is a few miles north on the other side. In any event, we, we, we did this, and I saw some benches um, that that I, I wanted to recommend to the administrators of Tarrytown, we might um, uh, choose a bench to honor Marsha while she was still alive. So she would see, you know, this, this little, um, this project. And I, I suggested a spot to the administrators. They came back a couple of weeks later. I thought they forgot. They, they had a much better idea. They found a beautiful bluff uh, with, with, uh, with, a, with a tree providing shade. And they were going to start a, a memorial and an honor bench area with marshes being, you know, the first. So that experience, just involving outside people while she was still alive, so she can still see the fruits of what's happening, not to accelerate her demise, but, you know, why wait? Why, doesn't, why not let her see this? Other things we did, we, um, we did uh, uh, activities to help other people. We formed a nonprofit, and we named it after her. Marsha was so, was so modest, she would never let us do that. We called it Marsha's Light Foundation. Mm-hmm. It's a small nonprofit, and, you know, and we engage with other nonprofits so that by doing, helping other people, by doing good for others, got our minds above the cancer, and we felt good about it. So see, these are some of the, you know, the, the life plans um, we, we undertook. And toward um, Marsha's, in her final week, uh, final couple of days, as a matter of fact, I remembered that a palliative medicine doctor gave me a pamphlet, um, which I put in my backpack and, and kept in there for months. But something caused me to take it out in her last week. It's called Five Wishes. And it's it's a legal document, but it's written in, in easy-to-understand English. And it not only conveys you know a legal advanced directives, but how a patient wants to be treated. And we, de- and we developed Mar- wishes. It was a project, how Marsha wanted to be remembered. Um, so that's in the book. It's also on the website, smoothriver.org. But, you know, the, the combination of all the, these projects gave us the feeling that we were doing something affirmative, that even though medicine may fail us, um, you know, we have to come to terms with uh, this is life. You know, COVID happens, mm-hmm. accidents happen, crime happens. And, um, you know, I have friends who didn't have this experience who died immediately on a treadmill or, or, or on a bike. And we know all sorts of tragedies. And even for them or their survivors, I would, you know, I would hope that the case study we provide would enable their survivors a perspective in looking back at their lives with, with great value and, and um, superseding, you know, the, the way they, the way they passed. Yeah, very much. I, I found that story about the, the benches wonderful because, you know, um, you write so many times memorial uh, types of activities happen, you know, posthumously. Um, but I think it's um, as an individual, you, to be able to see, that something is going to live beyond you that's going to be um, a positive influence, you know, in the world that, you, that you're leaving is, is wonderful. Now, gosh, we're down almost to the end of the show, Richard, but one of the things you know, at the very end of your book, you have um, lessons learned. Um, so would you mind sharing with us maybe a, a lesson or two that um, were learned through this period? 
Sure. Now, these lessons learned, I, I didn't want to make this book into a how-to book like Seven Habits of Highly Effective People or just a antiseptic, you know, clinical point. But I did mm-hmm. want to encapsulate or, you know, put together, put borders on our, our learning. So some of the lessons, and these are not lessons for a reader to just take. It's more of a springboard to develop, to apply and adapt you know, these points to their own circumstances. So one of the lessons is, you know, your life is bigger than any condition. You know, take the hit and widen, widen your perspective. You know, making the point that it's, um, your life should not be defined by the way you die. It's just a subset. And, um, uh, you know, we should recognize the entirety of a, of a, of a patient's life. Another, another, uh, another lesson was avoiding narrow societal thinking, this programming or expectations society, society may uh, apply to us about you know, treating this as a sport or running or doing this or whatever. You, you should uh, take a – I don't mean to be authoritative about that, but we suggest – or I suggest – I still speak about we <laughs> uh, in the plural. <laughs> I suggest that, that, um, that you take a wider expanse and, and approach your – illness or circumstances more mindfully understanding your core values is scraping off all of your airs or all the veneers all the ego stuff and understanding who you really are and and living out those values you know setting the medical plan as i I mentioned before um you can do chemo you can do heavy duty and you know invasive surgery it's all it's all good but do so mindfully don't do so as a matter of rote because it's one damn thing after the other as atul gawande said Set your life plan and make every moment count. Um, you know, speak about everything. Leave nothing on the table. Um, so you know, there could be open wounds among relatives or, or, or spouses or children. And uh, it's wonderful to, to just be able to absorb this and um, it's, you know, get rid of the anticipatory fear of speaking about things and, and just open up. This, this is it. You know, this is the remaining time of someone's life and there's nothing to hold back. Um, yeah, so define, define your experience and comfort those who comfort you. We got great value. People came to comfort us, but, you know, we didn't want to be looked down upon or pitied. And not that they were doing so, but there's a natural inclination to treat our circumstances as, you know, in, in really contracted bad terms. We, we, we wanted to console other people and tell them we were okay. We, we don't like it, okay, but this is the circumstances. These are the cards we we're dealt with, and if Marsha is not going to survive, you know, we're, we've, we will have to accept it. That's reality. And so we wanted to comfort other yeah. people so they would be able to appreciate that too. Yeah. So yeah, those, those are some of the well, lessons. There are, there are a few others. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, um, and I'm just going to say that the, the – the one chapter you had on discovering spiritual beauty within the storm brought me to tears. <laughs> I mean, it was the experience of um, a, an independent woman um, facing dependence, you know, on others. And I've known many, um, many an independent person, you know, in that in that particular spot. And you know, so, for those who are dealing with the same kind of circumstances. It's, it's a wonderful um, it's a wonderful section. So well Richard, I really want to thank you for your time. I, I really enjoyed your book. Um, it's uh, practical and and um, very thought provoking. Well Robert, thank you so much for having me and and um, um, very honored to be part of this wonderful uh, uh, fraternity that that you that you lead. So, thanks again. You're very welcome. Okay. Again, everyone, to my special guest friend Richard S. Cohen. We've been talking about Smooth River, finding inspiration and exquisite beauty during terminal illness. And again, you can find out more by visiting the website www.smoothriver.org. Everyone, I want to thank you for joining us for this edition of the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. And until we meet again, thank you for tuning in. You've been listening to the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. Remember, our show is available as a free podcast from Spotify, iHeartRadio, TuneIn, Apple Podcasts, 
Blog Talk Radio, Amazon Music, and Audible. To follow our show on any of those platforms, visit ByteRadio.me and select the one you use most. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at ByteRadioMe. Until we meet again, remember to be a bright light by bringing inspiration to your world and to the lives of those you touch.